transmission. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. All right, y'all. Good morning. Uh, Sorry about the audio issues. Hopefully you can hear me now. I appreciate those of you in the chat who let me know. Um, As y'all regular listeners know, Shop Talk is a one-man show, and so... Um, sometimes we have technical issues that happens Uh, so do let me know if there are any issues hopefully you can hear me now so uh, as I was saying I appreciate y'all tuning in Uh, my name is Adam Keller this is Shop Talk it's our Thursday episode we do every week with a focus on labor education history and training Today is Thursday, August 3rd. We're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley here in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and is released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. Today on the show, as we typically do the first episode of each month, I'll be sharing the important anniversaries in working class history. But before I do that, I do want to take a moment to thank our very first sponsor for Shop Talk. And yay, you can hear me now. That's great. Appreciate y'all giving me that heads up. So at the Valley Labor Report, we are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is a media and organizing project that since 1979 has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, Labor Notes promotes organizing, aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, local union leaders, and labor activists who know the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, worker centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. With 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exists as a resource for leaders and union members who want to chart a new course for the labor movement. At the Valley Labor Report, we are proud subscribers and supporters We encourage our listeners to do the same. Go to labornotes.org to find out more. So before we dive into the August labor history, I just want to, again, thank everyone for tuning in. Thank you for uh, commenting, letting me know what's going on. Really appreciate it. Um, And I want to say that uh, last week we talked to Chris and Harold from the Labor Radio Podcast Network and I uh, really enjoyed that conversation. Hope you checked it out. If you haven't, definitely go back and listen to that. Uh, we talked a lot about labor media and the changing labor media landscape and, of course, what the Labor Radio Podcast Network is all about. So if you're interested in finding other you know, pro-worker, pro-labor uh, media that's out there, definitely check out the network. So. It is time to share some of the August anniversaries in labor history and our long fight for justice. I compiled this information from a few different sources, 
the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a planned book for social justice educators. This excellent planner is published by the Education for Liberation Network. I don't want to make sure I give them credit. It is time for me to order the new edition. Uh, shout out as well to the Zen Education Project, which is another great resource. Check out their This Day in History post on social media. And Labor Tri- the Labor Tribune of St. Louis and Southern Illinois at labortribune.com was a really helpful source that I've discovered in the last few months. And finally, thanks to Working Class History and their archives as well. I won't pretend this is an exhaustive list of working class history anniversaries in August, but we'll mention quite a few important and interesting events in the history of the South, our labor movement, and our class, including quite a few working class martyrs, as well as milestones in the civil rights struggle. So let's get started. August, on August 1st, 1917, Frank Little, a biracial white and Cherokee organizer for the Revolutionary Industrial Workers of the World Union, was brutally lynched during a miner strike in Butte, Montana. After organizing a strike of metal miners against the Anaconda Company, wobbly organizer Frank Little is dragged by six masked men from his Butte, Montana hotel room and hung from the Milwaukee Railroad trestle. Years later, writer Deschelle Hammett would recall his early days as a Pinkerton detective agency operative and recount how a mine company representative offered him $5,000 to kill Little. Hammett says he quit the business that night. Frank Little also took a stand against the war, arguing that all working men should refuse to join the army and fight on behalf of their capitalist oppressors. He said in the last speech before his death, quote, I stand for the solidarity of labor. He took part in the free speech campaigns of the early early 20th century, and I found this interesting that in Spokane, he was sentenced to 30 days in prison for reading the Declaration of Independence. Just a few, late, few years later, on August 1st, 1921, Sid Hatfield, the pro-union chief of police of Matewan, West Virginia, was assassinated alongside his friend, Deputy Ed Chambers, by Baldwin Felt's private detectives in Welch, West Virginia. Born in 1891 into the Hatfield family of the legendary Hatfield-McCoy feud, Sid Hatfield worked as a miner, a blacksmith, and eventually chief of police. And he was a unique character in U.S. labor history, especially for the time, since he was a vigorous supporter of the United Mine Workers of America Union which is uh, quite unusual for law enforcement, whether it's in the 20s or now, frankly. In most places, police helped mine bosses arrest, beat, and kill striking workers. But in Matewan, Hatfield defended the miners. In the Battle of Matewan in 1920, hired thugs from the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency arrived in the town to evict striking miners from their homes and arrest Hatfield with a phony warrant. Hatfield, a crack shot known for holding two pistols, told them the only way the detectives would take him out of the town was dead. Shooting then broke out, which left ten people dead, two miners, the mayor, and seven Baldwin Feltz agents. Sid Hatfield and 22 others, mostly miners, were put on trial for the killings of the agents, but none were convicted by any local juries. So instead, Baldwin Feltz agents plotted to murder Hatfield, 
when Hatfield and Chambers attended McDowell County Courthouse on August 1, 1921, agents shot them to death. Despite the victims being unarmed, the agents were acquitted of murder on the basis of self-defense. Also on August 1, 1938, or also on August 1st, but in 1938, police in Hilo, Hawaii, opened fire on 200 demonstrators supporting striking waterfront workers. The attack became known as the Hilo Massacre. And finally on August 1st, but way on back in 1834, Britain passed the Slavery Abolition Act, outlawing the owning, buying, and selling of humans as property throughout its colonies around the world. While this did not free enslaved people in the United States, it was a source of inspiration and hope for American abolitionists. It outlawed slavery in Canada, which became a haven for refugees. Black people in the United States and white abolitionists observed August 1st day widely up until the Civil War, and the tradition carried on, to a lesser extent, into the early 20th century. On August, 7th, August 2, 1917, a multi-ethnic armed uprising took place in rural Oklahoma in opposition to conscription during World War I, in what would later become known as the Green Corn Rebellion. 105 years ago, on August 2, 1918, the first general strike in Canadian history is held in Vancouver, organized as a one-day political protest against the killing of draft evader and labor activist Albert Ginger Goodwin, who had called for a general strike in the event that any worker was drafted against his will. August 2, 1924, was the birthday of novelist, essayist, playwright, poet, social critic, and activist James Baldwin. I wanted to share this quote of his from A Talk to Teachers. Quote, the paradox of education is precise, precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. On August 2nd, 1869, the first so-called Redeemer government was established in Tennessee after conservatives gained control of the General Assembly replacing the biracial Republican governments created under Congressional Re Reconstruction, these whites-only Democratic state governments were often composed of former Confederates and their sympathizers who opposed racial equality. These politicians claimed they would, quote, redeem the South by repealing reforms and reinstating white supremacy. On August 3, 1980, Presidential candidate Ronald Reagan addressed a large crowd at the Neshoba County Fair as he campaigned in his bid for the presidency. The fairgrounds were mere miles away from the site where three civil rights workers, one a student participating in Mississippi Freedom Summer and the other two Corps members, were murdered and buried in shallow graves by members of the Ku Klux Klan in 1964. Reagan appealed to the, quote, George Wallace-inclined voters dreaming of a return to segregation and freedom of unfettered white supremacy in his stump speech, saying, quote, I believe in states' rights. In his appeal to white supremacists, he did not acknowledge the murders, which had been investigated by the FBI and were just one instance of violent assaults on local black civil rights advocates and white allies in recent history. And I thought it was worth highlighting that moment, uh, in part because it's very close to where I'm from, I'm from Meridian, Mississippi originally, 
I have family uh, very close to Neshoba County. I have been to the Neshoba County Fair. Uh, I've been on those very grounds. So I thought it was worth highlighting uh, the way in which Ronald Reagan started that campaign, because I think it was quite revealing of, you know, who he was trying to appeal to and how. And I thought it was also interesting that exactly one year later, August 3rd, 1981, some 15,000 air traffic controllers with the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, went on strike. President Reagan threatened to fire any who did not return to work within 48 hours, saying they would, quote, forfeit their jobs. They do not. Most stayed out and were fired on August 5th, also banned from federal service for life. In that PATCO strike in August of 1981 uh, really was an escalation in the class war, frankly, uh, and it saw an escalation of corporate power fighting back against labor. And we have seen, you know, in the, in the five decades since, a concerted effort by corporate power with their allies in government to bust unions and to shrink unions and to weaken unions. August 3rd, 1986, Florence Reese died in Knoxville, Tennessee at the age of 86. She was a mine workers union activist and author of Which Side Are You On? written after her home was ransacked by Harlan County Sheriff J.H. Blair and his thugs during a 1931 strike. And if you uh, are not sure if you've ever heard Florence Reese, but you're listening to my voice, you have heard her. Uh, we use a version of that song, a remixed version that Jules Taylor did uh, for our intro. August 4th, 1876, the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers is formed. It partnered with the Steel Workers Organizing Committee, CIO, in 1935. Both organizations disbanded in 1942 to form the new United Steelworkers. August 4, 1997, nearly 185,000 Teamsters began what is to become a successful 15-day strike at UPS over, in part, the excessive use of part-timers. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about that 1997 UPS strike, definitely recommend our interview with Teddy Ostro uh, from a few weeks back. He's actually been on the show twice in the past month. Uh, most recently, we were talking about the tentative agreement and what's in that agreement, the reaction of rank-and-file Teamsters to the agreement. Uh, but a couple weeks back, actually, he came on the show to give us some background and context to this current UPS struggle, and we talked at length about the 1997 strike. So definitely recommend Teddy Ostro's work, including his podcast, The Upsurge Podcast. So also, sticking with August 4th, as I mentioned earlier, referring to Reagan's Neshoba County speech, uh, on August 4th, 1964, the bodies of three lynched civil rights workers, James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman, were found after disappearing more than a month before. On June 21st, 1964, James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman were tortured and murdered by the KKK with help from the deputy sheriff near Philadelphia in Neshoba County, Mississippi. They were killed defending the right, their right to learn and human rights for all. 
The three young men had traveled to Neshoba County to investigate the burning of Mount Zion Methodist Church, which had been a site of a core freedom school. While searching for the three civil rights workers, bodies of other African Americans were found, including Henry D. and Charles Moore. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I have family out that way. I grew up out that way. Uh, I actually witnessed a KKK march in downtown Philadelphia uh, when I was growing up. Uh, so this would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, August 5th, 1993, the Family and Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, took effect. It was the first law signed by President Clinton, and I would argue maybe one of the best ones, if not one of the only good ones. Uh, but that's my opinion. So the FMLA allows many workers time off each year due to serious health conditions or to care for a family member. August 6th is Independence Day for Jamaica. It's also Hiroshima Day, an annual observance held to remember the dropping of the first atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima on August 6th, 1945. Twenty years later, on August 6, 1965, the Voting Rights Act was signed into law after roughly two centuries of voting rights struggles. And more recently, August 6, 2011, some 45,000 CWA and IBEW representative workers at Verizon began what is to be a two-week strike, refusing to accept more than 100 concession demands by the telecommunications giant. On August 7, 1894, Eugene Debs and three other trade unionists were arrested after the Pullman strike. August 7, 1919, Actors' Equity is recognized by producers after stagehands honor their picket lines, shutting down almost every professional stage production in the country. Before unionizing, it was common practice for actors to pay for their own costumes, rehearse long hours without pay, and be fired without notice. I'll take this moment to send our love and solidarity to all of the striking actors and writers right now, uh, as well as those who are affected by the strike, uh, such as folks in my own union, IATSE. Uh, I know there are a lot of productions that are shut down right now. Uh, there are a lot of folks who are struggling, um, and we just want to send our, our best and wish them much success in securing the fair contract that they deserve. Also on August 7th in 1983, some 675,000 employees struck AT&T Corporation over wages, job security, pension plan changes, and better health insurance. It was the last time CWA negotiated at one table for all its Bell System members. Uh, divestiture came a few months later. The strike was won after 22 days. And finally, on August 7, 1988, television writers, members of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, ended a 22-week strike with a compromise settlement. August 8, 1979, Amalgamated Meat Cutters and Butcher Workmen of North America merges with Retail Clerks International Union to become what is now known as the United Food and Commercial Workers. On August 8, 1964, the Freedom Schools Convention was held in Meridian, Mississippi, my hometown, with students from all over the state. 
The day after the funeral for James Cheney, this student convention was held to coincide with the state convention of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Adults in attendance included Bob Moses, James Foreman, the Free Southern Theater, A. Philip Randolph, and more. August 9th is the International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. Declared by the United Nations in 2010, this annual commemoration is intended to raise awareness of the 370 million people worldwide whose traditions, cultures, and identities have been exploited and violated for centuries. On August 10th, 1931, the Airline Pilots Association was founded at a meeting in Chicago attended by 24 activists from across the country. August 10th, 1939, President Roosevelt signed amendments to the 1935 Social Security Act, broadening the program to include dependents and survivors' benefits. On August 11th, while hip-hop's origins began much earlier, it's often said to have officially been born on August 11, 1973, at a dance party where DJ Cool Herc used two turntables to create a breakbeat. In uh, August 11, uh, I really like that, uh, knowing that that's kind of the birthday for hip-hop. I'm a hip-hop fan myself. I listen to all kinds of music, uh, but there can be no dispute, I think, that hip-hop has... Um, been a voice for a lot of folks who are working class folks who are struggling uh, and who have rapped about and talked about and sang about their their struggles in their communities. August 12th is International Youth Day. This UN holiday rec recognizes efforts of the world's youth to change global society for the better and promotes ways to encourage their active involvement in making positive contributions to their communities. August 12, 1992, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, is concluded between the United States, Canada, and Mexico to take effect in January 1994, despite protests from labor, environmental, and human rights groups. August 12, 1994, what was to become a 232-day strike by Major League Baseball players over owners' demands for team salary caps began on this day. Ultimately, 938 games were canceled. On August 13, 1892, striking miners at Tracy City, Tennessee, capture their mines and free 300 state convict strikebreakers. The convicts had been leased to mine owners by officials in an effort to make prisons self-supporting and, of course, make a few bucks for the state. The practice started in 1866 and lasted for 30 years. Was not familiar with Tracy City, Tennessee, uh, so we'll definitely have to put that in my Google Maps and see how far away that is. That's very interesting. Also on August 13, 1963, Civil rights leader and union president A. Philip Randolph strongly protested the AFL-CIO's executive council's failure to endorse the August 28th March on Washington. More on that in a moment. August 14, 1935, President Roosevelt signs the Social Security Act providing for the first time ever guaranteed income from retirees and creating a system of unemployment benefits. In a 1994 Rethinking Schools interview, Howard Zinn, the historian, said this, 
Quote, emphasizing social and protest movements in the making of history gives students a feeling that they, as citizens, are the most important actors in history. Students should learn that during the Depression, there were strikes and demonstrations all over the country, and it was that turmoil and protest that created the atmosphere in which Roosevelt and Congress passed the Social Security Act. Skipping ahead to August 19, 1958, high school history teacher Clara Looper and the NAACP Youth Council in Oklahoma began sit-ins to desegregate lunch counters at the Katz drugstore. Also on August 19th, and this is a bit, you know, far removed from labor history perhaps, but I think it is so, so important to understanding modern American foreign policy and foreign relations. On August 19, 1953, the Iranian premier, Mohammad Mossadegh, was removed from power in a coup organized and financed by the British and U.S. governments. The Shah quickly returned to take power and signed over 40% of Iran's oil fields to the U.S. companies. There's a lot more you could say there. Um, 1953 to 1979, the Shah was in power and held power through a brutal dictatorship, which was propped up by Western interests, uh, both governments and corporations. And uh, ultimately, the Shah was removed through the Iranian Revolution, uh, which turned ultimately into uh, an Islamic fundamentalist revolution, uh, and those folks still hold power in Iran, and uh, we're still dealing with the consequences of that decision and many other Cold War covert actions uh, that have affected the global south and countries around the world. On August 20th, or on or about August 20th, 1619, Africans who were kidnapped from their homelands and brought to British North America were brought by force to Point Comfort part of today's Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia. The name of the Point Comfort landing place was just one of the great and bitter ironies of the August 1619 disembarkation, which led to the establishment of the British trans transatlantic slave trade, as well as slavery itself in the British colonies and subsequently in the United States. Also on August 20, but in 1965, Jonathan Daniels was killed. Jonathan Myrick Daniels was an Episcopal seminarian. He had gone to Alabama to work on the desegregation of churches and voter registration. On August 13, 1965, Daniels and others picketed white-only stores in southern Lowndes County. They were arrested and taken to Haneyville, where they were jailed in overcrowded cells with no air conditioning and toilets that routinely backed sewage out onto the floor. They were released on August 20, 1965, but were not provided with any means of transportation back to Selma. Stranded in the 100-degree heat, Daniels and the others sought a cool drink at a nearby store. There, they were met by Tom Coleman, holding a shotgun, who demanded they leave the property or risk being shot. As Coleman aimed at 17-year-old African-American Ruby Sales, Daniels pushed her away and took the full impact of the shotgun blast in his chest, dying instantly. Coleman was acquitted. On August 22, 1945, five flight attendants from the Airline Stewardesses Association the first labor union representing flight attendants, 
so that was the formation of the very first labor union representing flight attendants. They were re reacting to an industry in which women were forced to retire at the age of 32, remain single, and adhere to strict weight, height, and appearance requirements. The association later became the Association of Flight Attendants, which is now a division of the Communication Workers of America. Also on August 22, 1986, the Care McGee Corporation agreed to pay the estate of the late Karen Silkwood $1.38 million, settling a 10-year-old nuclear contamination lawsuit. Karen Silkwood was a union activist who died in 1974 under suspicious circumstances on her way to talk to a reporter about safety concerns at her plutonium fuel plant in Oklahoma. August 23, 1927, Italian immigrants Sacco and Vanzetti were accused of murder and tried unfairly and ultimately executed on this day. The case became an international cause and sparked demonstrations and, and strikes throughout the world. On August 23, 1968, 43 black soldiers staged a sit-in at Fort Hood. And August 25th is the birthday of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. They were launched in New York. Uh, back in 1925, led by A. Philip Randolph and Milton P. Webster. August 26, 1970, the Women's Strike for Equality is staged in cities across the U.S., marking the 50th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, under which women won the right to vote. A key focus of the strike, or more accurately, a series of marches and demonstrations, was equality in the workplace. An estimated 20,000 women participated, some carrying signs with the iconic slogan, Don't Iron While the Strike is Hot. August 27th is the birthday of Mary Anderson, born in 1872. Anderson, a labor leader who advocated for women in the workplace, was the first director of the Women's Bureau of the U.S. Department of Labor, and she served for five presidents over a 24-year period. Anderson saw the number of women workers more than double over the course of her activism. On August 28, 1963, hundreds of thousands of people from across the United States marched on Washington for jobs and freedom. When most people think of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, what comes to mind is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s iconic I Have a Dream speech. In truth, there was much more to this historic event than those four words in King's speech. The March on Washington was a milestone in a movement that spanned many years of activism, organizing, and civil disobedience by a wide variety of civil rights groups. The date of the march itself symbolizes that long history. The March on Washington was held on the 100th anniversary of the, or at least the 100th anniversary year of the Emancipation Proclamation, and eight years to the day after 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi. While Dr. King was a major player, the March on Washington did not begin as a classic civil rights march and was not initiated by him. There is one constituency that can legitimately claim the legacy of the march, one that has been eclipsed in both history as well as in much of the lead-up to the August 2013 commemorations, and that is black labor. 
Uh, highly recommend an article by Bill Fletcher Jr. on the hidden history of the 1963 march. It is called Claiming and Teaching the 1963 March on Washington. Uh, and I also recommend an interview with William P. Jones and Jacobin from last year called You've Been Lied to About the 1963 March on Washington. Quite the inflammatory title, uh, but it's a good article. Worth your, worth your read, I believe. All right, so August 29th, we had uh, a couple different things going on on August 29th, one of which would be the Shays' Rebellion. Uh, you may recall a little bit about that from American history class, uh, but basically you had American colonists who were rising up. Uh, well, at this point, they were no longer colonists. Uh, we had the Articles of Confederation, uh, but it was a rebellion that took place during the Articles of Confederation government here in the United States. Uh, and the rebellion was suppressed, um, and ultimately the leader, some of the leaders were actually hanged. Also on August 29th was the Chicano Moratorium and the murder of journalist Ruben Salazar, and that was in 1970. On August 29, 1970, some 25,000 people gathered in East L.A. for the National Chicano Moratorium March to protest the Vietnam War, particularly the disproportionate number of poor and working-class Latinos killed in the war. The rally was disrupted when police officers fired tear gas canisters into the crowd. Three Mexican-Americans were killed, including Ruben Salazar. He was a noted journalist and unfortunately was struck in the head by one of the projectiles, killing him instantly. After the police violence at the protest, the Chicano community continued to organize against the Vietnam War and against police brutality, bringing attention to Salazar's death. August 30th, 1919 is the date of a despicable event in American history, a Knox, the Knoxville Riot. Uh, this was during Red Summer, which in 1919 was a summer of anti-black violence that spread all over the country, uh, and that included right down here in the South, of course. And so Saturday, August 30th, 1919 was the date of the Knoxville riot. Also wanted to draw attention on August 31st to one of the most important events in American labor history, which is the Battle of Blair Mountain. So August 31st marks the anniversary of the largest civil insurrection in U.S. history after the Civil War. This uprising was the climax of two mine wars fought in the West Virginia coal fields from 1912 to 1921. At a time when many citizens are worrying about economic inequality, when conservatives are bewailing the use of class warfare language, when insurgents are still being imprisoned without due process, you know, when we have these issues throughout our country, the multiple layers of crisis, it's really worth knowing about labor history and, and knowing the, the history of people rising up throughout our country. Uh, and to me, this is one of the most important ones. The Battle of Blair Mountain uh, erupted on August 31st, 1921 in Logan County, West Virginia, when the Miners' Army clashed with armed forces, armed forces marshaled by the county sheriff, the coal companies, and the state police. 
the three-day Battle of Blair Mountain was the climax of this, you know, these mind wars that had taken place for years. And I want to lift up the West Virginia Mind Wars Museum. Uh, they have been doing some really great work. They did some great work uh, two years ago around the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain. Um, I know that they have something called Camp Solidarity that they are hosting this fall, I believe in October. Uh, so the West Virginia Mind Wars Museum. Look them up. Check them out. If you want to learn more about the Battle of Blair Mountain or the Battle of Matewan or Sheriff Sid Hatfield or any of these really interesting and important stories uh, in West Virginia's labor history, which are, is so instrumental in American labor history, check out West Virginia Mind Wars Museum. And as we're wrapping up here today, I wanted to highlight a few events from Labor Notes. Uh, they do have their stewards workshop this month on August 23rd. That's going to be in the evening on Zoom. All of these meetings are in, uh, are Zoom meetings. It's online. It's free. Um, this stewards workshop is called Investigating Grievances. And so this is specifically for uh, stewards or elected officers. And I did misspeak. I said it was free. Technically, it's $10, but no one will be turned away for lack of funds. Uh, so most of Labor Notes trainings are free. This one, they do suggest you, you contribute $10 for it. Uh, should be a really good, ser uh, really good workshop. They do have a workshop series called Secrets of a Successful Organizer. Highly recommend that if you're interested in learning about how to get more involved, if you want to learn about organizing, if you want to learn about having conversations, how to build power in the workplace, Lots of really practical tips here. Uh, highly recommend it. It's going to be on Mondays from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on August 14th, 21st, and 28th. And they do ask that you attend all three workshops in the series. On August 9th, Labor Notes is hosting Caucus How To. A rank-and-file reform caucus is a group of members who set out to transform their union, establishing a new vision and organizing to make it real. This workshop We'll tell you all about how to do that. And again, that's August 9th. Really recommend that if you're interested in running for office, perhaps, in your union uh, or just shifting the direction of your union. Two last workshops I want to highlight. Uh, August 5th is the first of two workshops on race and labor. So Saturday, August 5th, and then Saturday, August 12th uh, from 11 to 1 p.m. Central Time. So, unfortunately, we can't attend because we'll be broadcasting the Valley Labor Report at that time. But I really do recommend this session. How does racism show up in our workplaces and our unions? What are some strategies to confront it and build solidarity for a stronger multiracial labor movement? And what can you say to union siblings who aren't convinced racial justice has anything to do with union politics? Those are the kind of questions you'll be wrestling with. And final workshop recommendation, uh, you missed it on August 1st, what to do when your union breaks your heart. But I do want to again mention that I did interview Ellen David Freeman from Labor Notes earlier this summer. We talked about that session. So if you did miss it this week, no big deal. Go back and check uh, Shop Talk from earlier this summer, my interview with Ellen Friedman. Uh, and I have no doubt Labor Notes will host that workshop again. 
So last things, I uh, did want to mention I was on America's Workforce Radio today, so check that out. should be a really good episode. Not only was I on to talk about some Alabama labor stories, Dave Jameson from the Huffington Post was on to talk about his five-part series on union busters. Uh, so should be a really great episode. Uh, this Saturday on the Valley Labor Report, really excited. We have Kim Kelly scheduled to come on. She's one of our favorite labor reporters. She's doing fantastic work uh, writing and documenting about this resurgent labor movement across the country uh, and really interested in what she has to say, uh, especially when we talk about minors and uh, some of her work on black lung. My understanding is she's even been to Washington, D.C. lately, uh, and so she can tell us all about that. And that's it, folks. I believe this was the 20th episode of Shop Talk. Uh, I have kind of lost count at this point, but I hope it was worth your time, and I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, please do share it. Make sure you're plugged into our work. Uh, just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working-class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast, and portions are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. Definitely encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm where we post articles and news and commentary. While you're there, check out our store, tvlr.fm slash store. We have pre-orders open for our Join a Union or the Boss Will Get You t-shirt. Uh, that is 100% union made in America. Great t-shirt. Uh, it is an essential for the unionist wardrobe. So uh, check it out, tvlr.fm slash store. Sign up for our email newsletter while you're there. And uh, finally... We rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. We appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads on our main Saturday show, as well as Labor Notes sponsoring Shop Talk. So please hit us up if you are interested in your organization becoming a sponsor. Our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm donate. Whether you donate, share, subscribe, or just listen, we really do appreciate your support, and we can't do it without you. So if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity and collective organization, if you want media that is for working people, by working people, please consider becoming a recurring donor at tvlr.fm donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.